If you have your Bibles, um, we will be in Genesis chapter 3. You can go ahead and, and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair around you. Or uh, if you don't own a Bible, don't have access to one, we'd love to, to give you access to one. You can stop by the info desk on your way out this morning and we'll put one in your hands. Uh, I want you to have it. Um, I always want you to follow along in your Bible. Right? That's why I try to remind you of that every week. But this week especially, because here's what we're going to do this morning. We're in Genesis 3. Uh, we're going to cover the whole chapter. Uh, and it's, we're really just kind of work through it like line by line, verse by verse, chunk by chunk, sort of. Um, so I'm going to constantly be directing you back to look at the words in Genesis chapter 3. But just to catch us up, kind of where we are this morning... We are in the third week of our series, our Easter series. Uh, again, I'm still struggling with like, is it Easter? The question mark just throws me off, all right? But um, the, the series kind of works like a chain, right? Each week is like a link in the chain. It connects to the week before it, uh, connects to the, the week coming after it. And so just so we're all on the same page, here's where we've been. Week one, we were in Genesis 1, talking about uh, creation, how God is the creator, and as a creator, he has um, authority over everything and everyone, and we are accountable to his authority. Right? And the only appropriate response for us as his creation is uh, submission and obedience. Okay, so that was week one. Uh, last week, we were in Genesis 2, and we kind of zoomed in on God's design for man and his purpose for man. And, and we talked about how God was created, or how God was not created, how man was created. That was heresy. Sorry. Uh, we talked about how man was created by God, how man was created for God, and how man was created to be with God. Right? And, and Genesis 2 ended with the man and the woman in the garden, uh, naked, or if you're in Kentucky, naked and unashamed. Okay? And listen, that, as funny as that is, that has little to do with nudity. It has everything to do with the man and woman had nothing to hide. Right? Nothing, no shame, no sin, nothing they needed to cover up. Right? That's, that's where Genesis 2 ended. And so that brings us to Genesis 3. And where I need you to lean in this morning is uh, we're working our way toward Easter, right? The good news of Jesus's resurrection. And it is good news. It's the best news. And we're going to celebrate that uh, like crazy over the next couple of weeks. But before we get to the good news, like we've got to, we've got to go through some bad news. Okay. In fact, the good news is not really good news until you like stare uh, the bad news right in the face. So we, we don't get to take a bypass around the bad news. Like we've got to go right through the middle of it. And so that's what we're doing this morning in Genesis 3. So we're just going to tackle it head on. So here we go. So let's start in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? All right, pause. I promise we won't do that after every verse because if we did, we'd be here a while. But we are going to pause quite often. So this is a good question from the serpent, right? We've got a pop quiz this morning. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree 
in the garden. Like, so you guys are like, I don't know. I'm, I don't know what to say. I don't want to put myself out there. It's an open book test, okay? Look back at Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. This is what God said to them. He said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. All right, so did God tell them not to eat of any tree in the garden? No, he did not. Right? Actually, he said, you may eat of every tree in the garden except the one tree, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Well, let's move on to verse 2. And so Eve responds, verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. All right, so to Eve's credit, she gets it right for the most part, right? Eve responds like, no, God didn't say that at all. He said, we actually uh, can eat of every tree in the garden except this one tree. Uh, we can't eat of that tree. Also, we can't touch that tree because if we eat of it, if we touch it, we die. Now, that's not exactly what God said, right? Because God didn't say anything about touching the tree. He just said, don't eat of the tree. Right? There was no instruction from God about touching this tree. And the reason I point that out is because what's happening here in these, just these two verses already is, is there's already a distortion of God's word to his creation. Right? The, the serpent shows up and he, he says, hey, did God actually say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Right? He, he distorts God's word. That's not what God said. And then Eve, in her response distorts God's word, like puts words in God's mouth, right? So what you've got going on here is, uh, is, is this distortion of, of God's word, right? which continues to this day, right? I mean, we see that everywhere, continues to this day, but that's a subject for another day. Let's move on in verse four. It says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So just a blatant lie from the enemy. Right? A blatant lie from that. Just a complete contradiction of what God had just said. Right? We, we read it in Genesis 2 just a minute ago. A minute ago. God says, you eat of this tree, the result is death. And here's the serpent, uh, the crafty serpent says, hey, you eat of the tree, you, you won't really die. Right? You, you won't really die. But he goes on. Verse 5. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Right? So the serpent sort of finishes his assault on Eve here. But, but I, want you to, I want to point out to you what's happened. Right? First, the, the serpent distorts God's word by making him seem restrictive. Right? Did God actually say you cannot eat of any tree in the garden? That's not what God said. We talked a little bit about that last week. God is not a restrictive God. Right? But, but Satan, through the serpent, plants this seed in Eve's mind that God is, is restrictive. Right? And then he goes on and he contradicts God's word. Right? God said you eat of this tree, you die. The serpent says, nah, that's not really true. 
Right? So what he's done in this moment is he's planted this seed in, in Eve's mind that not only is God restrictive, but he's also untrustworthy. You, you can't trust what God says. That's not really what's going to happen. Right? And then not only that, but he appealed to the man and woman. He appealed to, their, uh, to the idea, the possibility that, that if they ate of this tree, then they could be like God. Never mind the fact that, that God himself has already said, you're created in my likeness and in my image. The serpent deceives them again by telling them, hey, you really want to be like God? Take and eat the fruit. Right? He, he planted seeds of doubt in their minds that God was restrictive, that he was untrustworthy, that he was somehow like withholding something good from them. Right? And then they believe, they believe the lie. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. In, in a moment, Adam and Eve believed the lies about God. They believed that that they could be like God. Really, really what they're doing here is they're believing that they uh, are better gods than God. Right? That's what drove them to, to take the fruit and eat. It's this idea that, hey, I'm going to... Like they rejected God's word to them. They rejected his authority over them. They rebelled against him. And they said, hey, we really know what's best for us. And they take the fruit and, and they eat. What I want you to see here, and this is going to kind of go back to where we were a couple weeks ago about God's authority... The sin here is, it's not, it's not just an act of disobedience. I mean, it is that. Right? It's certainly not less than that. Right? But, but sin is, it's first and foremost, before it's like an act of disobedience, their sin is ultimately a, a rejection of God's authority. Right? It's, it's a rejection of God's good and abundant provision for them in the garden. Right? It's a... Uh, a, a rejection of God's uh, care for them. It's a rejection of God's uh, good and rightful rule and authority over them. It's them saying, like, hey, we know better than you. We're going to chart our own course. And they take the fruit and they eat. Right? Their sin was more than just an act of disobedience. It's outright rebellion against the creator of the universe. Right, a couple weeks ago, we talked about God is the authority. The only appropriate response is to submit and to obey that authority. And here, right, we get two chapters over in the Bible, and that's gone out the window. And so for us this morning, what, what I want us to see, and this is kind of where it gets sort of applicable or, or the implications of this for us, is like sin is not just like a it's not just like a parking citation that you just kind of shrug off and stuff in your glove box. You're like, meh. Right? Our, our sin is significant. It's serious. Right? It's insurrection against the creator of the universe. That's what sin is. But, but we don't always think of it like that, do we? And because what we do is we call our sin, it's our mistake, it's a... Uh, uh, a bad decision, it's a struggle, it's a, 
a hang-up. Right? We use a lot of those words that sort of knock the, uh, the edges off a little bit. That way it doesn't hurt as bad, doesn't, doesn't feel as bad. Because let's be honest, to say, I made a poor decision is a lot easier than, than saying, I rejected and rebelled against the authority of the heavens and the earth. And, and yet, until we understand the seriousness, the significance, the depth of sin, like in, until we see how bad it is, we will not fully comprehend how good the good news of the gospel is. Right? You've got you to face the bad news, and it's bad. And it's only when we grasp how bad it is that the good news of Jesus really becomes good news. All right, so let's move on, see how this plays out for, for Adam and Eve, ultimately how it plays out for us. Verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So suddenly they, they realize in a moment, right, they, they disobey, they reject, they rebel, take and eat the fruit, and in a moment they realize all of a sudden they've got something to hide. Right, I've got something that, that I need to cover up. Right? And so they make for themselves fig leaves, uh, which is uh, an exercise in futility. We'll talk more about that here in just a little bit. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Right? And so now that they, they find themselves in this place where all know, we've got something to hide. Right? They, that's what they do. They not only try to cover themselves up with some, uh, some foliage, but now they're, they're hiding from God in the garden, which is the most feudal game of hide-and-seek ever, right? It's like uh, if you've got kids, sometimes or, my kids, they're better at it now, but they used to be like, was the idea of, oh man, if, if my parents can't, if I can't see them, then they can't see me, right? And so like hide-and-seek for kids was like, right? and this is what Adam and Eve are doing here, right? They're trying to hide from the sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent, ever-present creator of the universe by hiding in the creation that just a few days ago he spoke into existence. They're going to be found, right? So here's what happens in verse 9, right? God begins to question them. It says, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, the man responded, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And then God says back to the man, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Right, so God begins to question Adam. Right? And God questioning Adam here is, is not him fishing for information. Right? This is not... This is not God's interrogation of Adam, okay? Uh, in the sense that, like, when you're, when you're a parent, it's like, I'm sorry that's the only examples I give. It's just what I got, okay? Um, when you're a parent, there, you have these moments where, like, you hear 
some sort of hysterical crying in another room. Right? Parents agree. Right? And, and like there's a difference. Like you can discern like, no, that's a crying I can ignore and I don't have to do anything with. Uh, and then there's some crying that you're like, that crying might lead to death. I need to go check that out. Right? And so you, you hear the crying in the other room and you go in there and you, uh, you walk in. You've got one kid with like a handprint on his face. You've got another kid um, that is like wailing hysterically in, in the corner right, with the broken toy. You've got like a hole in the drywall. Um, right? Then you've got, you've got one kid missing an article of clothing somehow, right? Like, and you walk in on these scenes and, and, and what we do as parents is we start having to like ask questions to sort of be like, what, hey, what, what happened here? Right? Trying to reconstruct the scene of the accident. You know what I mean? Right? And we call that a random Tuesday in the Larkin household, by the way. Um, we have to do that. God doesn't have to do that. He's the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, sovereign creator of the universe. Right? God has never had to sort of reconstruct the scene of the accident. One of the, one of the pastors I listen to a lot, he says it this way, God doesn't drive an ambulance. He doesn't show up on the scene trying to be like, what happened here? Right? He knows. He knows what Adam and Eve has done. He's, he's not asking these questions uh, in order to kind of get brought up to speed on what's going on. God's never not known what was going on at any given place in any given moment. And so why is God asking these questions to Adam? It's not because he doesn't know. It's because he's, he's, he's questioning Adam to draw him out of his hiding. He's giving, laying before Adam this opportunity to acknowledge his sin, to acknowledge his rebellion, to acknowledge this broken, fractured relationship that he has created because of his disobedience. He's laying this opportunity before, before Adam. It's an, it's an invitation to Adam to step out of the darkness and into the light. And here's how Adam responds. Verse 12 says, The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. So God says, Adam, what happened here, man? And Adam's response, shift the blame. It's the woman's fault. Actually, God, you created the woman. Maybe it's kind of your fault. And what can only be like divine self-control, God doesn't just like smite him right there, right? He turns to the woman. Verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? More blame shifting. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It's not my fault. It's the serpent's fault. He's the one who tricked me. So God lays before them this opportunity to, to answer, to acknowledge, to confess. And there's, there's no confession. There's no acknowledgement of their sin, of their rebellion. There's only these feeble attempts to sort of shift the blame onto someone else. Right? And so God begins to lay out the consequences of, of their sin. 
Because sin always has consequences. Always has consequences. Here's what, we'll read a big chunk here. Here's what God says starting in verse 14. God's turn to talk. He says, the Lord, God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." Right, a lot of words there. Let me condense it down for you. Here's consequences of, of their sin. One, the command to be fruitful and multiply. I mean, that was God's command, if you remember, from chapter one. Some of God's first word to man and woman, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And here God says, that act now, being fruitful, multiply, it's going to be a painful experience. And, and as one who's who's been in the room for four children being born, looks like a painful experience, okay? Right. And then even aside from, from birth, like raising children, like filling the earth, multiplying, it's not for the faint of heart, I'm telling you. Hey, you guys are going to be great. It's going to be fine, okay? All right? Um, but it's a painful, right, pain. And not only that, the uh, relational tension is now a reality because of, of sin and its entrance into the world, right? There's tension between the man and woman here, right? And so we know this, right? The world we live in filled with tension, relational strife and struggle, all the result of sin, right? Sin corrupts all of creation, not only does it corrupt—I can't even talk. Not only does it corrupt human beings created in God's image, it all of creation feels the weight and the effects of sin. And so now, the command that God originally gave to His creation to uh, subdue, exercise dominion over creation—they still have that. Like we still have that call in our lives, but now that's hard work, right? He says that's going to there's going to be thorns and thistles, and it's going to be hard to create and cultivate. It's going to be labor. It's going to be toil. Right? There's, like, work is a, is a good thing. But there's a reason that sometimes you hate your work. Right? And it can all be traced back here to Genesis 3. And then ultimately, like the, the ultimate, the, the ultimate uh, consequence of their sin is that now death is a reality. God made good on his word that, hey, you, 
you step outside of these boundaries that I've laid for you, the consequence will be death. That's what God says. You, you came from dust, and now to dust you shall return. Right? My favorite movie ever. I would argue the best movie ever created. Forrest Gump. Okay? There's a scene in there where Forrest's mom laying on her deathbed, and she's telling Forrest, you know, Dying's a part of life, Forrest. Not originally. Death is not normal. But it's the effect, the consequence of sin. And that that death and that separation uh, would be most felt in physical death. But that separation doesn't doesn't just happen once Adam and Eve die. Actually, the the consequence, the separation between God and, and his creation, his people, happens Immediately, that's what, that's what happened starting in verse 20. It says, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever... Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Separation. The, the, the pinnacle of God's creation, man and woman created in his image and likeness, created by him, created for him, created to be with him, sent out of his presence. Right? And, and it's here, it's here in Genesis 3, or really at the end of Genesis 3, is there driven out of the garden, out of close proximity and presence with God. That, this, is, this is where the Bible intersects with our story, because this is our experience. All that you and I know is life in a post-Genesis 3 world. We are not in Eden anymore. And this is, this is, what, this is what Paul says. Here's, here's how we got here. Romans 5, verse 12. Paul's writing to the church in Rome, and he says, Just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. Right, this is where we find ourselves this morning. All of us. Human beings no less created in God's image than Adam and Eve. No less created uh, by God. No less created for God. No less created to be with God. Yet as right, descendants of our first parents, Adam and Eve, we are marred by the effects of sin. Right? Sin is not just something we do from time to time. Like it's, it's our nature from birth. This is what uh, David wrote in Psalm when he says that, that in, in iniquity was I brought forth. In sin did my mother conceive me. That's not him saying like I was conceived as a result of sin. It's from the moment of my conception I was corrupt. I was broken. I was marred. I was sinful. 
all of our stories. Right? It's, it's who we are. And so, like, what you and I need the most is not, like, is not just a few like, simple steps to help us stop sinning. Right? The answer is not, here's three easy steps to never sin again. Because sin goes deeper than just our, our behaviors and our actions. Right? Sin is, that's our hearts. Sinful, wicked, corrupt hearts. That's all of us. Right? Even your, man, your little blessings down in the kids' ministry, I love them, but they're born with corrupt hearts. And so we need something deeper than just behavior modification. We need something deeper than just trying to sort of handle our sin on our own. Right? Trying to do whatever we can do to sort of cover up our own sin and our own shame in the way that, that Adam and Eve thought uh, sewing together some, some fig leaves would be sufficient covering for them. Like We need something more. We need something better than just our own attempts to, to get out from under our own sin. Right, to try and cover yourself up with, with your own good behavior or uh, your own performance or to try and outweigh all the bad you've done with a little more good, like that's exhausting. And it's futile. Because we need something better and deeper than that. We can't possibly get ourselves out of the mess that we've made. So that's the bad news. But here's the good news. We don't have to. We don't have to figure this out on our own. As bad as the news in Genesis 3 is, and it is bad, there's a glimmer of hope. A glimmer of hope. If you look back, the first glimmer actually is verse 15. Some people call this sort of the, the very first sort of hint of the gospel. Uh, but we're actually, where I want to direct your attention to is verse 21. So this is after, right, after they take and eat the fruit, after God announces the consequences. Verse 21 says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Before God sends them out of the garden, sends them away from his presence, God looks at their pitiful attempt to try and cover themselves up, and he says, that, that's not enough. That's not sufficient. And so in their sin, like, like, like a, Moments ago, they just rebelled against the creator of the universe and broke everything that would ever exist. In their sin, in their shame, in their rebellion, in their rejection of God, God takes the initiative. And he, he kills an animal, and he takes the skin, and he fashions some clothing for Adam and Eve to cover their shame. And he says, here, this is for you, and he sends them out. He provides them with the covering that they'll need to live and exist in a fallen world. Right? They, they leave covered by the sacrifice that God made for them. And if that's not a beautiful picture, foreshadowing of the gospel, 
then I don't know what is. I mean, this is just as God sacrificed an animal, his, his creation to, to cover the sin of, of Adam and Eve in the garden. I mean, one day, thousands of years later, he would sacrifice his own son to provide covering for our sin and for our shame, right? to, to cover the sin and shame of all those who would confess their sin and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So as early as Genesis 3, man, when, when sin enters the world and it's broken, we've already got this, this glimmer of hope that, that God's got a plan. He's already working his plan of redemption in the world. So like Adam and Eve, you, you and I have, have sinned and rebelled against the God of the universe. And we will be held accountable. Every one of us. And, and we can show up, we can show up to the judgment seat one day, try to cover up in our own sort of fig leaves, you know what I'm saying? Like our own our own good behavior, our own best efforts, our own attempts to outweigh the bad with, with some good. We can try that. But I'm going to tell you, you show up to the judgment seat covered in fig leaves, like that will not be sufficient. But God has given you adequate covering, the only sufficient covering, and it's Jesus. It's Jesus. God, in his grace and his mercy, he's taken the initiative. He's taken the first step. Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We don't, we don't clean ourselves up first. You don't get everything right in your life and be like, okay, now I think God can save me. No, God meets you in the disaster just like he met Adam and Eve. He meets you there. And he offers you Jesus Christ, his perfect life lived in place of your imperfect life, his death to atone for, to satisfy God's wrath toward your sin, and his resurrection, which is proof that the payment was sufficient, that the covering is sufficient, the check cleared, there's nothing left for you to pay. Jesus paid it all. And the invitation for you is to receive that by faith, by trusting that the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only sufficient covering for your sin. The only way you'll stand on the day of judgment, judgment is when you can go before God and say, like, I, I've got nothing except Jesus. That's the only hope I've got. I've trusted in him. He's covered me. That's all I've got. That is our hope. So, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior, right? maybe you just kind of approach life knowing you've done some pretty bad, wicked things and just kind of hoping that you tip the scales enough by the good that you do that when God sees you one day, they'll be like, eh, good enough, carry on. And if, if that's you this morning, I just want to love you enough to tell you that your efforts, your attempts to cover yourself are insufficient. They, they won't cut it. 
And besides that, what an exhausting way to live. Right? What an exhausting way to live, to just be like, ah, I screwed up again today. Let me do two or three good things to make up for it. Right? That's religious performance. That's not Christianity. That's not the gospel. So if you're here, if you're here this morning, I would just implore you, come to Jesus. Right? Lay down your efforts and your attempts to cover up and atone for your own sins. Receive the covering that only Jesus offers, the only sufficient payment that Jesus offers. That's what he offers you today. Or maybe you're here and you are a Christian. You have trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior. But if you would be honest and kind of look at your life, you would say, man, sin has taken root. Right? I, have, I have given my life over uh, with some consistency and regularity to my own sinful compulsions. It may be anger. It may be bitterness. It may be lust. It may be greed. It may be pride. I mean, we could, we could sit here and list these things out all day, right? But maybe you're here and you would say, these things have taken root in my life. Maybe you've believed the lie that God is restrictive or untrustworthy or that he's withholding something good from you. And so you've just decided, I'm going to do what I want to do. And what you found is it only leads to shame and brokenness. And maybe you feel that pull to kind of, I just need to, I just need to perform a little better, do a little more, try a little harder, cover myself up to make myself presentable. And what God is is saying to you this morning in grace and mercy and kindness, he's, he's calling out, just as he called out to Adam in the garden, he's calling out to you and he's inviting you, step, step out of hiding. Right, step out of these feeble, futile efforts to try and cover yourself up and atone for your own sin. Right, step out of the exhausting cycle that that is and step into, receive the covering that he has offered you in his son, Jesus Christ. Right, the only sufficient covering you'll have. So, if you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe you need to receive that covering from Christ for the first time. would love to talk to you about that this morning during our response song or after service. Or maybe you're here, you are a Christian, and you just need to receive that once again because you've forgotten it. Right? That's your invitation this morning. Confess, repent, receive the sufficient covering of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you this morning um, just grateful. Grateful that uh, in our sin and shame and, and brokenness, um, Lord, that you don't leave us to clean things up on our own, but that you've moved toward us in the sending and in the sacrifice of your son Jesus. And So I pray this morning for these, these men and women here. Lord, maybe there's some here in this room that have never received the gift of salvation. They've never trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Maybe they've just been kind of 
doing this exhausting sort of rat race of trying to cover up themselves. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to them this morning that you've moved towards them, that you're offering them cover, atonement, forgiveness for their sin. I pray they would receive that this morning for the first time if they never have. Give them boldness or to turn to you, to turn from their sin and to trust in you. Boldness to have a conversation with myself or someone around them this morning. Boldness to come to the altar and pray. And then, Lord, if there's something here this morning that maybe they have trusted in you, but for too long they've just given themselves over to their own sinful desires and compulsions. They've been living in open rebellion, rejection of your authority. I pray that you would I pray you would convict them of that this morning, that they would that they would see and be reminded that you did not send Jesus into this world to condemn the world, but that through Jesus, um, Lord, you would you might save the world. I pray that they would be reminded of the gospel that they responded to once upon a time, that you would lay it fresh on their hearts and minds this morning. Or that they would give up these attempts to either hide from God like he doesn't know what's going on or they would give up their own attempts to cover their own sin that they would receive with, with fresh ears, the fresh mind or the fresh heart the covering that you've offered to them in Christ. So Father, you know the hearts of all of us here in this room, Lord. You know how we need to, ought to respond. Uh, and Lord, I pray that your spirit would move us in that direction. That we love you. We praise you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.